encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 3. Psalm chapter 3. As you're finding your way there, I do want to say just a word publicly this morning to thank Amy Gass for serving as our ministry assistant for the last almost four years. She has served us well in that capacity. She'll be transitioning very soon to back to full-time teaching at Evergreen Elementary School. But Amy, thank you. I know we've been saying that throughout the past week, but I just wanted to say that on behalf of the church and uh, for, for all that you've done these past several years to keep uh, me straight and then Jeremy as he came aboard. And so well, we thank you for all that you've done and how you've served our church well. And we look forward to seeing how you'll be a blessing to the public, public school in the coming weeks. And uh, Ms. Carissa Myers will be taking uh, kind of the helm of our office operations. She's out of town this weekend, but she'll be starting Monday in the ministry assistant role. Psalm chapter 3. Psalm chapter 3. Let's pray as we look at this together. Father, we ask for our eyes to be able to see, our hearts to be able to know and to feel your presence and your provision. So Lord, would you help us to see that and to feel that, to know that today as we consider your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. We live in a positive thinking, success-rewarding, victory-celebrating culture that makes little to no room for human weakness. And even thanks to Hollywood, we've, when we do have stories of weakness that emerge, they typically end in a dramatic happy ending, don't they? Yet the world in which we really live says something different. For one thing, victory in life is always partial. That should encourage you Redskin fans. Just saying, you'll figure that out later. Pain and affliction are always nearby. You might know the blessings of success, the blessing of victory, partial as it may be, the, the blessing of health and popularity and some level of prosperity, but friend, there will be a day when your name will be forgotten, when sickness and disease will come, when the fact of the reality of human emotions such as confusion, doubt, anger, fear, anxiety will all be real and overwhelming. So what do we do in those moments when life is difficult, when anger is intense, when fear is paralyzing, when worry overwhelms us? What do we do with those kinds of emotions and feelings? Do we just tough it out? We just try to will ourselves to feel better? Or do we feel guilty for even feeling that way? How do you and how do I, how do we prepare for those moments of weakness and struggle? Maybe even those moments of feeling abandoned and neglected. Well, the Lord in his kindness has given us help in his word. Particularly, we find the kind of help that we'll be looking for this morning in the Psalms. Over the next month or so, there's going to be several different preachers and several different sermons, but the sermons that I'll be preaching out of Psalms at least three times this month will be looking at what we call Psalms of Lament. There are many different kinds of Psalms that we find in largest book of the Bible, when we could look at various kinds of Psalms, but Psalms of Lament, inspired by the Lord, we're going to be looking at three of those. Some of these are, some of these psalms are, are, are what I would say, some of the most neglected passages when it comes to um, addressing our hearts in light of the struggles that we face. Psalms of lament are prayers of a hurting people. They're cries for help, 
believe the Lord has inspired them for us to help us in our own times of lament, to help us lament the brokenness of our own sin and fallenness of the world in which we inhabit. There are oftentimes we gather as Christians and we, maybe we're not told this, but, but maybe we have this expectation in our mind or maybe it's kind of been a nonverbal um, a nonverbal thing that's been communicated to us that when we come together as God's people, we, we should always be happy. We should just sing happy songs. We should preach happy sermons. We should pray happy prayers. We just need to be happy. When the reality is, is that oftentimes when we come into a gathering like this, the last thing that we are is happy. And let me just tell you this morning, it's okay. It's okay for you to come into a gathering of fellow strugglers, unhappy. But we don't want to leave you or your unhappiness unaddressed. And we need to understand that even in our unhappiness, there is hope, there is assurance, there is something that is greater and deeper that provides for us the very thing, the very substance that we truly need, not just to make us happy, but to give us eternal joy and confidence, even in our unhappiness. So it's good for us to come here in our unhappiness, to sing unhappy songs, to consider unhappy passages of Scripture, to pray maybe unhappy prayers. God has given us these psalms of lament to help us express our unhappiness and to call us to trust Him even in the midst of our greatest struggles and anxieties. I want us to read Psalm chapter 3, a psalm of lament. We're told there that this is a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. This is what we read, beginning in verse 1. O Lord, how many are my foes! Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. This is the first psalm that we come to in the Psalter that comes with an introduction and a title. I'm not talking about the bold black print that you have above your chapter. That's, that's not inspired text. It was just a, an editor trying to give you an idea of what this passage is saying. But I'm talking about the smaller fine print beside typically the chapter verse. See, it's just the first psalm. You can look there, Psalm 1 and 2. It doesn't have this introduction. But here in Psalm 3, we see that this is a psalm of David, so we know the author. David wrote many, if not most of the psalms, but there are other psalm writers as well. But he wrote this one, and we know the context from which he's writing it. He's writing it out of a time when he was fleeing from his own son who had stirred up a rebellion, had anointed himself as king and tried to overthrow David. And so this is the, the context from which David is writing, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to write this psalm. The actual event that leads David to record, record this psalm regarding his son Absalom, you can find in 2 Samuel chapter 15 and 16. While David was busy leading Israel, his son Absalom devises this plan to overthrow him. By the time David gets wind of the plan, his life was in jeopardy, and so he flees Jerusalem. This was not just a small little thing where Absalom comes along and says, hey, I think I want to be king now. No, he raises up an army. He goes through a ceremony of anointing himself as king, and he comes to Jerusalem to take over. And we're told in 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 30, that David leaves the city of Jerusalem weeping, 
and barefoot. Just to kind of give you an, a taste of the urgency, the turmoil that he was experiencing. So this is the backdrop of the psalm that we see before us today, written by David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, at least after he had fled the city of Jerusalem, fearing for his life with a coup on his hand, an attempt to overthrow him. So you can imagine the inner turmoil of David's heart. David was not happy. He was overwhelmed with anxiety and fear and worry, concern. He was humiliated. I mean, he was the king of Israel, and now he is on the run, barefoot and weeping. There are four steps in this psalm, we could say, that walk us through the realities of a an unhappy soul, and how this unhappy soul, this, this struggling anointed king deals with his dilemma. And I want us to walk us through these four steps today as we think about how a believer should approach adversity, the things that might weigh us down and what our response to it ought to look like. I'll walk us through this psalm just in four steps today. First of all, we want to begin with the believer's adversity. We see that in verses one and two. David's expressing the, the reality of his burden. Oh Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. So that's the context. This is the concern that David has. His son has stirred up a rebellion against him. Not just a small one, thousands of people. He's he stirred up against him. And not only is there this, this, this rebellion against David, this, this attempt to overthrow him, they are also saying, you're done, David. Don't cry to your God because he will not deliver you. It was bad enough to, to have a rebellion on his hands, but to add salt to the wound, they're telling him in the midst of his grief, in the midst of his turmoil, don't trust God He's not going to help you. So here we have God's anointed king having been driven out of God's appointed city away from God's chosen people told that God will not deliver him. David's having a bad day to say the least. So as we consider David's dilemma, I think that we're too reminded of the sobering reality that we will all face in some form or another opposition. And just think about it. This is the anointed king of Israel. Pretty important guy. And he's facing this level of opposition. And there's inevitably going to be opposition to the people of God whether that's through seeking to silence our voice from the public square or by taking our very life. There has always been opposition to us. There will always be opposition to us until King Jesus comes again. And we should not find it surprising. God's people will be opposed. Sometimes it will be direct and dangerous and other times it will be much more subtle. But one of the tactics that we see that the enemy, that the true enemy has, is he seeks to use others to undermine our faith. That's what's going on here, isn't it? Not only is David being pushed out, not only is he being physically opposed, he is being forced to even question his own God. How oftentimes do we face the same? People stand against us, they stand opposed to us, and they will oppose our stance, and they will seek in every way to undermine the reality of our faith. Spurgeon once said that it is the most bitter of all afflictions to be led to fear that there is no help for us in God. That's exactly where David was. 
being pushed aside and being told there is no help for you, even with the Lord. Friends, we should not find ourselves surprised by this. Even here in the United States, this is not a Christian nation. It can be debated whether or not we were at one time, but presently it's not a Christian nation. And we are increasingly in the minority. It's a fact. And the fact of the matter is, is that we will stand be stood against. We will be stand, we will stand, people stand against us. We will be opposed. And we expect that from the culture, but I want you to think about this for a minute. Think about who David's foe was in this text. It was his own son. It was not some pagan Gentile, some, some Canaanite, background person. And sometimes our adversaries will be those closest to us. What do we do in those moments? Friends, we are to seek the Lord as we will see and we'll trust in him. But you see there, David sums up his dilemma. He has foes and he has foes that are telling him that his God will not deliver him. Friends, you may not find yourself in a situation like David. First of all, you're not a king or a queen. Um, if you are, that's cool. But you're probably not. You may not be in fear of your life like David was. But there will be times when you might be fearful of losing your job because of your faith. You might face the difficult, sobering reality of family rejection for your faith. Friends, when we consider this opposition here in David's case, an opposition in general to God's people, we shouldn't find it all that surprising, for Jesus told us this is what would take place. Jesus warned us of this. In fact, in John's gospel, in chapter 15, we read in verse 18, Jesus says to his disciples, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember, the world, remember the world, or excuse me, remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. David was the anointed king of Israel. God had called him to serve in this capacity. God had anointed him. God had chosen him to lead the people of God. And now he was being opposed by his own son. Whether within or whether outside, friends, we were going to be stood against. So how do we respond? What do we, what do, we do when we are told that even our God will not help us. I mean, we're told many different things, aren't we? This world. But whose word are you resting on? So we see here in point number one, the believer's adversity. We will have opposition. David had it from his own son. We see that the people of God had it throughout the, the Old Testament, and certainly it changes not in the New Testament when Jesus comes and he explains quite well why this opposition happens. Because the world hates him, it will also hate us. In fact, if you can live a life absent of adversity, you might want to consider whether or not you belong to Jesus. But let's look at the second point. 
the believer's assurance. Thankfully, David doesn't end the psalm after verse two. There's a break. The word Selah is there. We're not exactly sure what it means. It's probably just a, um, a musical or a, a poetic um, pause. But it leads us right into verse three. He states his, his dilemma, and then he moves into verse three. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. You see, while David was in a serious and troubling situation, he, he doesn't cower in fear and despair. As he states his trouble to the Lord in verses one and two, he quickly shifts his focus away from the trouble to the Lord. Just a reminder, friends, that gazing too long at our difficulties will only intensify our anxieties. You need to look at your difficulties. You need to be honest with them. You need to bring them before the Lord and state them for what they are, but gazing too long at them will only increase your anxiety. While we need to honestly recognize our troubles, the response of our heart needs to quickly move to a deeper and bigger perspective. We begin here in verse three to see David's hope and his confidence surge because he looks beyond his ordeal to the very one who orders his every step. Now, there are several things that David recognizes here that we need to consider. He recognized several things that he has in the Lord and, and things that I believe the Lord would, would provide the, for us today. Let's, let's consider them. First of all, he, he acknowledges that we have security. Look at First part of verse three, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. A shield. Now, a shield was obviously an important piece of equipment in battle that served a defensive purpose. Now, we need to keep in mind that a shield doesn't prevent the enemy from still shooting. The enemy often will still shoot. The Lord here, David says, was his shield. The battle didn't necessarily go away. The problem didn't immediately evaporate. David's perspectives changed. He began to see the Lord for who he truly is. David was experiencing this mounting rebellion that's coming against him, and he now acknowledges that no matter what he may experience, no matter how many the foes may be, God was his shield. And there's gonna be many situations we find ourselves vulnerable and in need of defense, but one thing that we can be encouraged from this passage and in the Lord is the fact that God is a shield for his people, not just for his anointed kings. The same God that was a shield for David is the same God who is a shield for you. Psalm 18, verse 30. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. You may think, well, of course he's a shield for David because David's important. He's a king. And so sure he's gonna protect him. No, According to Psalm 18, verse 30, he is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. That means for you, friend, if you take refuge in the Lord and trust him in faith, he will be a shield for you. This is what gave David confidence in the midst of his situation. It was a reminder to him that having right perspective of his security would do well to serve him in this difficult time and it would do well to serve us in similar times. Friends, going into difficult situations, knowing the Lord is your shield can be one of the most assuring realities that you can know. You ever been in a difficult work situation? You feel like you're going into the lion's den every day? You feel like people are just opposed to you? Unjustifiably? 
There's, there's, there's comfort in knowing that no matter what you may face at work, they can throw everything at, they can fire you, they can throw everything at you, but God is your shield. But friend, I think that when we think about this truth that God is the shield, God is a shield for his people, for those who take refuge in him, I think the reality that we have to be honest with in our own hearts is that oftentimes we're looking elsewhere for, elsewhere for security, aren't we? Even though the Bible clearly says that God is our shield, we're looking to put up other kinds of shields. We're, we're looking to people to be our shield. If I can just have this relationship or if I can just have this person kind of represent me, if I can get on this person's good side, I'll be fine. Or maybe you're looking for some kind of financial security, financial shield that will preserve you. Or maybe you're even looking to the government to be your shield, to be your protector. Listen, friends, we need to be reminded that absolutely nothing can happen to us apart from the sovereign plan of God. And that God is our shield and we must trust him. Not only do we have security, God is a shield about me, David says. He also goes on in the next statement, says he's my glory. That's kind of a strange maybe thing to hear in our, in our, in our ears. Um, I think David's talking about here, he's recognizing who he was as God's anointed king and the fact that he was God's anointed king because of God. And he's pointing back to the glory and honor that God had in this, this plan that he, did, that he had in calling David to be king. And he's recognizing here that his identity is not in his kingliness, but his identity is in God who called him to this role. And he says, listen, as important as may, I may have been, um, God is my glory. God is my ruler. And God is the one to which we must look. The Lord had bestowed honor and glory on David as Israel's king, but David understood that this responsibility came from the Lord and would only be taken by the Lord. He found strength in being reminded of his God-given identity. I want to just remind us that oftentimes when we are suffering or struggling. Maybe we're going through a time of opposition. Someone's opposing us. Someone's uh, standing against us. Friends, one of the things that we need to go back to day in and day out is who we ultimately are. We need to understand what our identity is. And while we may not be the king of Israel... Friends, one of the things that we can be reminded of, is that, of the, from this passage is that, that God is also our glory. We may not be a king, we may not be a queen, we may not have some kind of royal, official rule in this world, but, when, but the, the fact of the matter is, is that we have been made sons and daughters of God. In fact, the Bible says that we have been made heirs, fellow heirs with Christ. Romans chapter eight, verse 16. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Because one of the truths that we find in the scripture is that as God's redeemed people, we are made heirs, fellow heirs, co-heirs with Christ. We understand that it is the Lord's doing, that God is our glory and God is our boast and God has called us to where we are and to be who we are in Christ. Friends, we have no true need of growing fearful even when we face mounting opposition. 
For the Lord has given us a place in his kingdom. The Lord has adopted us into his family. The Lord has placed upon us all of those who would cry out in faith to him. He has given us an identity that will never be stripped away and made us citizens of a kingdom that will last forever. You might find yourself in the midst of difficult circumstances. You might be opposed. You might see that your foes are many, but, but friend, you need to remember that you have been made a co-heir with Christ and an inheritance is given to you and waiting for you that no one can rob from you. David understood his identity. He understood his place, that God was his glory. And friend, we too need to understand that that he is our protector, that he is our glory, so that when we boast, we're not boasting in ourselves, we're boasting in him. We see that he has given us security and he has given us an identity, but we also have encouragement. He says that he's the lifter of my head. David was likely having doubts about himself. Think about it. He was probably doubting his ability as a father. He was probably doubting his ability as a king, as a ruler, as an example to the people of God. He was probably doubting all kinds of things. And the image we're given here that David clings to is that, that God was lifting the head of someone who had been dejected, humiliated, overwhelmed. Again, we can see how David would have easily been there. We could, have see, we could see how easily dejected David could have grown so quickly even. But listen, he doesn't stay there. He, he doesn't stay in that state of, of fear, that state of worry, that state of anxiety, that state of trouble. He sees that God is his shield, that he, God is his glory, and that God is the lifter of his head. And there will be many times in which we find ourselves dejected. Some of you know exactly how David felt. It may have been some kind of stinging defeat in your life that you've experienced recently. Maybe an embarrassing failure or perhaps some kind of public humiliation that, that you fear has forever destroyed your usefulness or your value to God. Maybe even the rebellion of a child. But you know that devastating feeling that David was experiencing here. And just a reminder that the enemy will often exploit the opportunity by reminding us virtually of every sin we've committed, reinforcing this painful conviction that you are now beyond recovery, you are hopelessly helpless, and a stain on the public face of your family or the church. So what are you to do? Well, David reminds you that through his experience that God is the lifter of your head. There will be times when you are dejected. There will be times when you are weeping and you will hurt. But friend, you must not stay there. You must not stay there. You need to understand that God in his kindness, God in his grace is in the business of lifting drooping heads, of taking, humil taking humiliated people and reestablishing them where their confidence is no longer in themselves but is in the Lord. God is in the business of reconciling you to him and you to others. So no matter how weak you may feel, no matter how useless you may have been accused of being, God is the lifter of our head. One of the kind gifts that we've been given, even certainly in the scripture, of being reminded of, of God's faithfulness. We see it all over the Bible. Psalm 3 is no, no less of an example. But outside of the Bible, one of the gifts we've been given to help us lift our head are the songs of the faith. 
There are reasons we sing on Sunday mornings. We don't just do it because that's what the church has always done. And there are reasons we sing particular kinds of songs. So aren't just randomly chosen Sunday morning. We think through them. How will this serve? What will this say? How will this inform? How will this direct? How will this shape our hearts? One of the gifts God's given us, even in life, is through singing. One of the ways that God will lift our heads so often is through singing truth together. Last week, we sang, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And there in that second or third verse, Luther wrote, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, sound like David? We will not fear. For God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. Today we sing before the throne of God above. That second verse, when Satan tempts me to despair, and tells me of the guilt within, how useless you are, how pathetic you are, how weak you are, how bad you are. When, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, God's the lifter of our head. Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Praise be to God. He lifts our head. Friends, we have encouragement in the Lord. God is in the business of doing, I can't tell you how many times I've read scripture and God has given me just that, that brief word that I needed to hear for that day. How many times we've come into here and we've, we've seen these songs that I've been part of planning weeks ago. And that one verse just I needed that. This is what God does. He encourages his saints. We see the believer's assurance because we have it in the Lord. But then I want you to see the believer's action, verses four through six. David just doesn't sit there and ponder his thoughts. He's moved to action. He states his circumstance. He asserts his confidence in the Lord in verse three, and that confidence now moves him to action. Verse four, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. So David understands his situation. He asserts his confidence in the Lord and it moves him to three things here. One, he prays. Verse four, he cries aloud to the Lord, he prays with expectation, but he, he prays. As soon as he regains perspective, he cries out to the Lord. Again, to quote Spurgeon, he said, we need not fear a frowning world while we rejoice in a prayer-hearing God. Friends, I know that we're told often to pray. It's part of our life as a Christian. David prays that God not only would protect him, but that he would hear his cries and God answers his prayer. We'll come back to that in a moment, but I want you to notice another, another thing David does. He prays, number two, verse five, he rests. After David expresses his concern, he regains his confidence, he prays to the Lord, then he does what any believer should do. He goes to sleep. Friends, sleep is a wonderful gift. Yes. Yes. Not at 11.37 on a Sunday morning, <laughs> but it's, it's a gift of God 
that he gives us. It benefits us in many ways. We know the physical benefits of sleep. But just think about sleep for a moment. It demonstrates several realities. Because friend, when, when you're asleep, think about this, you're at your most vulnerable state. One, we're completely at the mercy of God. Two, sleep shows that we trust God to supply our every need. And it's an expression of dependence upon him. We need sleep, which means we are limited. It means that you don't have it all together. Sleep is a reminder of your Weakness, and that you're entrusting yourself to the one who never sleeps nor slumbers. So David sleeps, and he wakes up the next morning knowing that God sustained him. And do you wake up in the mornings just grateful that the Lord sustains you through yet another day? In a very practical way, way, sleep is an expression of faith. William Plummer once said that we should leave all with God and fear nothing, and that's exactly what we do when we sleep. is isn't to say we shouldn't fulfill our responsibilities. is isn't to say we shouldn't concern ourselves over certain circumstances, but there comes a point when we reach a limit of all that we can do and all that we can contribute to a situation and that we must go on trusting the Lord. Doesn't mean that we walk around our house at 2 a.m. wringing our hands, wondering what will, what will we do? One of the, one of the and, and it's easier said than done, I'm speaking as one who has the gift of sleep. <laughs> Kyle Robertson roomed with me in France and he, he said, I'm pretty sure that you can do sleep on demand. Just, he'd be talking to me and I'd be out. But, friends, one of the, one of the most trusting things that you can do, one of the most beautiful expressions of faith that you can exhibit is simply to go to bed and leave things with God. David had thousands on his tail and he goes to sleep. That's what he does. He prays. He sleeps, and he reasserts that he's not afraid because the Lord sustained him. Number four, fourth step in this psalm is we see the believer's anticipation. You know, David prays, and he makes a, a bold request of God. In fact, in verses seven and eight, or verse seven in particular, he prays, This is, verse seven is the content of what he's probably praying from verse four. But notice what he prays for. He prays for three things. He prays that God would arise. He prays for personal deliverance and he prays for his enemy to be weakened and silenced. All three of which are good to pray. He prays that God would arise and work, that he prays for personal deliverance and he prays that his enemy would be weakened and silenced. It's a bold prayer. Arise, O Lord, save me. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. It's a clear and direct request, but one that it's again fueled by faith. Notice David's confidence in the character and provision of God leads him to expect God to work. Notice how even the prayer is recorded. He cries out to God, arise, O Lord, save me. And then he speaks of God's action in past tense as if it's already happened to demonstrate just how how confident and certain he was in the Lord to work. Friends, if we were to follow the narrative from which this psalm arises, you would see that David's prayer was in fact answered. Absalom eventually takes some bad advice and he dies along with 20,000 troops. 
Friends, how often do we lay our burdens before the Lord and cry out to him in faith, trusting that he will fully answer? And that's a real question. That's not a silly, lighthearted question. I'm asking you, just as the Lord confronted me in my own heart this week with this passage, I'm asking you, how often do you truly take your burdens and lay them before the Lord, fully trusting and expecting him to work? Friends, I think that so many times our prayers are marred by doubt. And I'm not trying to preach some kind of powerful, positive thinking. I'm not into that at all. But I think that oftentimes our prayers are, are just stained with all kind of doubt. I know the Lord would do this, but maybe in other situations, but I'm gonna pray anyway because I know that's what I'm supposed to do. Don't pray your prayers like that. And don't let your belief in the omnipresence of God keep you from praying and asking for God to move. What I mean by that is oftentimes we think, well, I'm gonna think theologically. God is always present. He is. And so God being always present should know what I need in this particular situation. So why should I pray to him? That's what I mean by don't let your belief in a good doctrine, the fact that God is omnipresent, he's present always, everywhere, at all times, hinder you from asking him to do something in particular. One of the things that we see oftentimes in the world, just experientially, we can go to the Bible and see this, but just experientially, God's working powerfully and beautifully and majestically in this congregation over here or in this Christian's life over here, but it doesn't seem as if anything's going on over here. You need to ask yourself, why is that? Because one of the things that God in his sovereignty does is that he ordains not just the end, not just the things that happen in life, but he ordains the means to the end. And many times, one of the means to the end is that God says, I'm going to do this as this person seeks me and cries out to me. So God's work in your life may be, you may feel like it's absent. And are you crying out to him without doubt? Hoping in his deliverance? In verse eight, we have the summary or the lesson of this psalm. It's simple. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. As we walk back through this psalm and see it in verses one and two, there were many who told David, there was no salvation for you in God. There's no salvation for you, David. There's no hope for you. Give up. Verse seven, David asked for this deliverance, for this salvation. And verse eight, it's given. It's just a reminder, by the way, that we need never to listen to the counsel or conclusions of the world, but always entrust ourselves to the very promises of God. The world is going to tell you so often and so many times, you need not trust God. You need not to trust his word. It's an ancient document filled with errors. You need to just look away from that because it's, it, we're in a new day. That's old stuff. You need to put it aside. Friend, don't listen to the counsel of this world because for you, you're gonna stand before a holy God one day and give account for your life. The question is, are you trusting his promises? Are you trusting his counsel? Psalm three is the testimony of a true believer that despite the odds against him, ultimately grew confident and hopeful because he knew the Lord was on his side. Friend, if God be for you, then what or who can ultimately be against you? What a strange but comforting hope we have that God brings strength out of weakness we see his fullness often when we are most empty and we find joy even when we've been most sorrowful. In a few moments, we're gonna sing a song and the words of the song go like this. Christ is our sure and steady anchor in the fury of the storm. When the winds of doubt blow through me my, and my sails have all been torn, in the suffering and the sorrow, when my sinking hopes are few, I will hold fast to the anchor 
it shall never be removed. That's what David does. He held fast to the anchor that he had in the Lord. And God sustained him. And he will do the same for you and for me. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for hope, for provision, for protection, for confidence. Lord, even when we face a significant and trying circumstances, Lord, we know that you are with us and that you are present to sustain. Father, I ask that you would move in the hearts of this gathering today, that you would remind us, that you would encourage us, that you would strengthen us, that you would help those who may be here today without hope to have hope, to find hope, that those who may be here today facing a mounting opposition in their life, Lord, that they would realize that no matter what they face, that you are their shield and that you are their comfort, the lifter of their head. Lord, I pray that you would lift many a head today in this room. Those who feel dejected and downcast, afraid, humiliated, those who feel tormented by their guilt, God, that you would lift their heads and you would help them to see the beauty and glory of Christ. They would cling to him in hope. Father, we thank you that you are our shield, that you are our glory and that you are the lifter of our head. Father, would you help us to look to you today in hope? We pray this in Christ's name.